Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour podcast, and your host today is Carla Reffold. Today we are joined by Thomas Kroll. Thomas is the current Business Continuity and Resilience Manager for Skyscanner. Before this, he did similar roles at Bank of Scotland, Manchester City Council, HSBC, Atos and Tesco Bank. He also served as part of the resilience team that led the 2012 Olympics and Paralympic Games in London. Hope you enjoy. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me today. I've known you for a long time, so I'm very excited to uh, to have a chat with you and, and run through some of the business continuity issues we're seeing now. Thank you for inviting me, Carla. It's, uh, it's great to catch up. So tell everybody else a little bit about you. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in uh, England, uh, south of England, uh, Cambridge, uh, and I was there until I was eight years old. Um, and uh, at that time, my father changed uh, jobs, so I moved up to Yorkshire, which was an uh, interesting uh, culture shock for an eight-year-old, uh, especially moving from somewhere as flat as uh, Cambridge in southern England to Yorkshire, where uh, quite large hills, uh, which I got to really enjoy uh, riding my bike around. And then uh, spent my teenage years there before going to university in Manchester and uh, had a fantastic year out in uh, America as well and got to know uh, a bit of North American college culture. Um, that, was, that was essentially my childhood, really, uh, really, uh, really fun time. Where's your favourite place that you've lived? Favourite place? Um, I have to say I feel very lucky to be living in my favourite place right now in uh, Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, I think it's got the... Uh, wonderful balance of kind of uh, being a great international city with lots going on, lots to do, but also uh, access to green space, getting out into the countryside very easily, um, into the hills uh, for a bit of hill walking and uh, uh, climbing. Nice. So you've been in business continuity for a little while, but do you remember the first time you ever heard that phrase? Um. That's a really good question. I don't think I can pinpoint an exact time. Um, I do remember starting to get very interested in it uh, as I was uh, coming out of university. And at that time, I had a, uh, a job which was uh, essentially a student job, uh, but with uh, an insurance company. Um, and whilst I was just doing an uh, office support um, for the company, I was able to spend a lot of time with the underwriters, both uh, socially and also learn from them. So I started to appreciate this concept of risk. And I'd also been studying geography. And uh, I think a lot of people have preconceptions about what geography is. And some people will joke, isn't that just places on a map? But I think there's a whole world of depth in geography that people don't fully appreciate. And for me, 
the way I explain geography is it's the um, uh, almost the interpretation of uh, patterns in systems, both in space and time. So how, how does everything fit together? Uh, and you, you can't get away from uh, the spatial component of that when you're considering how things fit together, but very broad topic. And within that topic of geography, when I was studying, I started to get interested in uh, uh, natural disasters, uh, winter weather, hurricanes, and how that impacts uh, society. So I'd started to build up that academic interest and then came across uh, risk as a concept from working in insurance. And that initially led me to looking at career paths like um, uh, catastrophe modeling. So these modeling com companies that do the analysis for uh, governments and financial institutions looking at uh, um, the potential financial ramifications of things like Hurricane Katrina, for example. I remember reading lots of articles at that uh, at the time of Hurricane Katrina, but uh, uh, it became very apparent to me very quickly that I'm not a numbers person, I'm more a kind of a concepts uh, person. Um, so following that train of interest, though, I started to explore emergency management as a profession and then very much so the, the the private sector manifestation of that is business continuity. So, so somehow I came across it at some point and uh, knew that I wanted to essentially get into a career of uh, helping to understand and manage uh, bad things that could go wrong in the world. Well, that's a really, like you say, geography wasn't a, a normal route into it, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Have you... Um, yeah. Have you managed to kind of realise any of that? Have you had to manage any of those sort of natural disasters that we've we've seen in the course of the last ten years? It's interesting. We're very lucky in the United Kingdom, this this little island uh, in northern Europe, that we don't have many what I would classify as natural catastrophes, definitely not on the scale that we see uh, in North America or the wildfires that Australia had or the typhoons in uh, parts of Asia. So. Um, I'm reticent to say that I've had direct experience of managing those types of events because many of the organisations I've worked for have been uh, UK headquartered. However, um, those same organisations have offices around the world. So um, one, one does specifically jump to mind. I was working for uh, an outsourcing company uh, probably about uh, four or four or five years ago now. And that uh, large technology outsourcing company and business process outsourcing had uh, two offices in Chennai, India, uh, both in uh, both within the city, but separated uh, geographically. So so if one office was left unavailable, the other would hopefully still be uh, operating, or at least that was the theory. And um, that uh, that same city is uh, prone to uh, or susceptible to typhoons based on uh, where it is. Um, so uh, if I step back one second, because that's the context, uh, I'd, I was helping uh, the executive team uh, of the company I was working for and a client as well, because it was going to be a joint run crisis management exercise. So I was helping to put that uh, exercise together and would come up with a scenario about uh, what happens if a cyclone hits uh, uh, the coast of India, where our operations are. And we were due to run that on a Monday morning. Uh, about 11 a.m. we were going to go start it. And uh, that night, the text message came uh, came in to our uh, on-call contact centre saying um, that the typhoon had actually hit. And honestly, 
Um, some I've, I've often said you can't make this stuff up, but you literally can because we'd created the scenario. We were going to run it that day and the very exact incident happened that same day. Um, we were left thinking, well, actually, do we run this exercise? What's what's our first response? And uh, it was uh, very apparent that when something is happening at the other side of the world that has such uh, physical impact on a place, there's there's very little you can do in the initial uh, hours to support that uh, support that location. So we ran the exercise um, and we we used this as a tool to explore uh, and solidify our understanding of what support we were going to need to give our Chennai colleagues over the uh, next 12 hours, over the next couple of days and over the next couple of weeks, uh, uh, asking the question, you know, how bad could this get? So. Uh, it was very timely, um, but uh, I think to just home in on that point I made about uh, that geographical separation and the support you can give in those first couple of hours, um, I think it's really important not just to have plans and procedures that exist at head office level, but those need to be, the, the same plans and procedures need to exist at that local level because uh, head office is uh, unlikely to be uh, available to provide support just logistically if the comms are down in those uh, those first hours and potentially days. Wow. Do you know, I've heard so many stories of people saying exactly that, that they had a exercise that either was about to run, had run a week earlier, um, even had run th that day when that scenario that they're planning for happened. Do you think they're all just coincidences or do you think you guys are just really good at coming up with scenarios that might actually happen? A, a, a couple of thoughts there. Firstly, when you're coming up with scenarios, um, it's, it's really important to create a scenario that's going to appropriately stress the capability of the individuals in the organization, not take it too far. We're not talking kind of meteor hitting the earth, uh, all bets are off. But actually, we need to create a scenario to properly stress test ourselves. If we come up with um, something relatively innocuous, maybe that's great for raising awareness, but it doesn't really expose uh, the senior management and all those that support them to what the, uh, the stresses and challenges of a crisis actually are. So we're trying to actually manufacture it so it's outside of their uh, comfort zone. And in doing so, though, we also need to make sure that it's reasonably plausible, because if you come up with something that's uh, got holes in it or unbelievable, it's very easy for uh, the participants of that ex exercise to, d to disengage. And um, uh, and if that happens, then uh, we haven't met the, the, the learning and the training objectives of the, the exercise itself. So the, there's p possibly uh, a good spoonful of uh, coincidence in there, but it's no surprise to me that we have we, we create these scenarios and then the actual event happens. I think the, the one other reflection is that the, there are companies that are single-sighted or they're just in one, uh, they have a couple of offices in one uh, country or one region of the world. And possibly for these types of, incidents, disasters, crisis, whatever we call them, for them that they don't happen that frequently. Um, doesn't mean you don't need to plan for them still, 
but uh, it's hard for them to imagine uh, what could go on. But when you are working for a, a global organization, or should I say, let me correct myself, they're actually an organization that has offices around the world, um, it's very much more likely that you're going to see um, incidents on a more frequent basis. Now, with the example you just gave, you know, obviously the, the first thought was, well, we have another office so we can continue operations. How much focus was on the split between, you know, protecting the business, protecting revenue and then protecting and helping the employees? The, the, the first uh, the first thinking was very definitely uh, the health and safety of uh, our employees. Uh, the there's a lot of organizations that say that in their plans um you know the the, the health and welfare of our uh, our employees are potentially our customers if you have on-site interactions with them our contractors our guests and our partners so it's not just your employees it's anyone that you have a duty of care for um there's a lot of plans that make that statement but possibly they haven't been fully thought out um so to fully think that through that is a collaborative effort that's needed with uh, health and safety professionals with your people managers um, and with the HR personnel team that can provide that support and especially on the emotional side as well I think we're all becoming more and more aware of that um, there is a kind of a, a boots on the ground reality though like I was stating before well, that that uh, ability to provide that support is very much down to what's going on locally, at least in the first couple of hours. Um, and then thinking beyond that, as you kind of move into the, the hours and days, you, you always need to remember that when a disaster of that scale has hit, it's not just taken your office out, it's possibly taken the homes of your employees out or it's uh, impacted uh, those that they uh, have care for or have caring responsibilities for. So um, the providing support to your employees, I think, needs to go beyond just that health and safety. But actually, what about their, their financial stability? Uh, what about the uh, stability of the community that uh, they live in and the community that you rely on uh, um, as a company? So I think one of the most interesting trends we're going to start seeing more and more in business continuity and resilience is this um, ever more overlapping boundary between corporate social responsibility and uh, and resilience and managing crises. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the current pandemic has really highlighted that. There's been companies that have communicated well with their employees and have looked after them well and companies that haven't. Um, and I'll be surprised if the companies that haven't don't see uh, some backlash to that over the coming years. Absolutely. I think uh, I think employees will will really remember how they felt and how they felt when the organisation was communicating with them and asking them to do things. Um, we often talk about maintaining in the private sector, at least and public sector, we may talk about maintaining the relationship with uh, our customers, but uh, uh, one of the most vital assets of your organization is also your employees. And uh, uh, you almost have a social contract. You have your written contract of what your job duties are and the remuneration you would, uh, will receive um, uh, for the work that you do. But also that, that social contract, I think, is becoming 
more and more important and uh, um, especially to those now entering the workforce I think uh, you, you'll know better than I Carla as a recruitment specialist but uh, um, I think it's uh, up there as important as uh, the uh, the financial package uh, mm, absolutely so t- wholeheartedly agree we've certainly seen um, a push on people who care about the culture people asking what culture is like what the values of a company is like um, and people tell us every every year that you know, salary is number two. Um, it's it's normally about progression and what that means for them rather than just the money. Um, but I really do think we'll see more focus on, you know, how companies have lived their values and how companies have, um, you know, reacted well or, n- or not so well. It feels like business can... continuity's reach might get a bit bigger. Yeah, possibly. Uh, and it, it definitely should. And maybe that's not just expanding the core remit of business continuity and changing the uh, changing the core deliverables of business continuity. But actually, maybe it's always been there implicit within what business continuity should have been doing effectively. Uh, collaborating with all parts of the organization and thinking through this. I think there's still a lot of organizations out there um, that see their business continuities function as just something to get the IT back up and running or get the uh, get somewhere to work if you lost your building. And uh, whilst that most definitely has uh, a place in the role of a business continuity manager, um, there's so much more to it that uh, is needed. And uh, I think that's why we're starting to see so many more job titles about uh, uh, organizational resilience. Uh, maybe uh, maybe that that potentially uh, rebranding of the wording uh, just takes people's minds a little broader than uh, the conventional views of business continuity. Well, I think that's a that's a really good point. You know, do you feel business continuity invokes sort of a vision of a bit of a silo that there is a better term for it? It's interesting perceptions on business continuity one thing that's always interested me is in north america um in the public sector they don't even call it business continuity they call it coop uh continuity of operations that stands for and um that they do that i I don't know the, the direct history behind that but i assume that's because they don't like the word business when they're a public sector organization so however much we tell ourselves that words and names and tags don't matter they do they they kind of elicit something in the psyche and i think um when when i deliver any training um i always say that to an extent it doesn't matter what we call things as long as everybody has the same understanding of what it means um so to that end i say to anyone that's a business continuity colleague you need to get out there and advocate what the scope of your role is and i think uh, as a, as an industry uh there are uh practitioners out there still predicating it that it's this relatively limited scope role however when done properly um it uh needs to explore the uh, the risks to continuity uh, of, from every angle of the organisation, not just the, the IT or the loss of building. I think words do matter. If you, if you take information security, as soon as people started calling it cyber security, um, people got a lot more interested. Yes, yeah. 
uh, what words come in and out of vogue, don't they? But uh, um, yeah, ab- absolutely. So you, you're seeing see many organisations now have. I mean, my job title, for example, is actually twofold, and I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't come up with my job title, um, but uh, at the moment I'm business continuity and resilience manager. And uh, uh, what's been uh, very refreshing and interesting is to be having conversations internally within my organization uh, about what that means, because I wasn't recruited with uh, a limited mindset of what the role could achieve. And actually uh, I was asked to come in and help the organization explore uh, what my role is and what how the organization be, could become uh, more resilient or better weather anything that might go wrong. And in the, the current situation, how, how well prepared do you think companies were? What a, what a big question. Uh, what a good question. Um, I think there were Let's start with almost the the basics of having a business continuity plan. I think there are many organizations that had focused very specifically on uh, certain types of bad things happening and they had a playbook to respond to that. And if that had happened, then they'd probably be well versed in doing that. Um, I think when this pandemic, COVID-19 hit, I think that blew most of the planning assumptions of most organizations out the water, uh, both in terms of scale of impact and duration of impact. And let's just just unpick for a second kind of what COVID is. It's essentially uh, what started as a a global health emergency, which at an organizational level becomes uh, a health and safety issue that has then morphed into based on the responses that uh, governments have had to put in place, it's become an operational issue, uh, which has then uh, the natural uh, kind of progression of that has been that it's become a a financial uh, crisis for many companies and governments. And um, most business continuity plans in most organizations, I think, have limited their scope. Now, I would say that Um, Another type of plan that I would hope to see in most organisations is a crisis management plan. And the crisis management plan shouldn't be predicated on any uh, individual event. It should be a plan um, that supports the management in how they'll respond to a crisis occurring. And that crisis could arise out of anything. It could be a cyber event. It could be a natural disaster or it could be COVID. And the crisis management plan should be providing them with a framework of how to assess what's going on, triage some of those impacts, make quick decisions with possibly limited uh, or partially unvalidated data, but then monitor the outcome of those decisions to quickly recalibrate them as necessary, and all the while effectively communicating with their stakeholders along the way. So I think if organisations have built up that, that competence in crisis management, as opposed to an approach that's uh, very much predicated on an individual playbook with, that will work for a certain set of circumstances, um, I think they'll be in a much better position. Um, and uh, I've had various discussions with colleagues and peers in various parts of the world, actually, um, 
and uh, we're all seeing the challenges, but our role is to keep providing that uh, um, that support and challenge to management to, um, to, to, to keep the awareness going. Um, maybe we'll come on to this in the questions, but um, we're now four months in from a UK perspective. We're four months into uh, lockdown of society as we know it, and we're, we're starting to see those lockdowns come out the other end. But... Um, who knew that you would have your kind of uh, crisis management team and the plan working for for four months solid? It's almost become the the new businesses or the living with the pandemic kind of into him new normal. Well, yes, you're you're absolutely right. It, you know, no, not many plans that I've ever talked about would have uh, been based on something lasting for four months and and possibly longer. Uh, and one of the things I know we wanted to touch on was not many plans also based on, you know, losing your customer potentially. Yeah, absolutely. So um, please forgive me for anyone listening to this that knows these basic tenets of business continuity. But to, to get away from um, kind of having to plan for everything and having a, uh, a playbook for every eventuality, business continuity takes an approach of impact-based planning. So uh, it doesn't matter if it's a flood or a fire, you've still lost your building if those two events occur. So let's have a plan for what you do if you lose your building, which I touched upon earlier. Um, if you have, uh, you were referring to cyber incidents, Carla, if you have a, a cyber event or you have a power outage, the, the impact is you've lost your uh, information technology and your communications ability. Um, possibly your data. So let's have a plan for the loss of the asset, not the not the cause. Um, loss of breakdown of your supply chain, another consideration for business continuity and also loss of your workforce. However, I'm not aware of organizations uh, and I have to admit I haven't planned for specifically what do we do if an event happens like COVID where we can't sell to our customer anymore possibly uh, because the industry can't operate. So for example, uh, hospitality, uh, hotels, restaurants, airlines at the moment, they can't sell. Um, and or another, uh, another reasoning, uh, if you literally can't, if you have a physical product, you literally can't ship it. Uh, to the customer because you've had to uh, close down your operations. So uh, that that starts to, that, or that has got me thinking about actually, uh, have we been missing that out as a fundamental component or consideration of the plans we've been building? And uh, maybe the only answer um, to uh, to manage that is, well, yes, we could be maybe doing things operationally differently, but uh, even if we can't sell to our customer, how do we still maintain the relationship with them? Because that's a hard fought relationship built up over time. And by the other end of the incident, we don't want them to uh, have forgotten about us and the, uh, the loyalty they had. So how can we continue to communicate with them? Do we have the tooling? Do we know what they care about? So we start to enter more into uh, the realms uh, of customer experience, of uh, brand and marketing, um, of needing to understand the tools of social media, and not to say that a business continuity practitioner has to be the expert in those 
individual fields, but they are collaborations that we probably need to start looking at within our organisation. I think that's a really good point. I mean, over the last, well, even over the last week or so, we've seen a real difference in the tone on social media. Um, and certainly, you know, when, when the pandemic started and you had uh, a lot of people criticising companies for messaging them and, you know, saying, we're still here or this is what we're doing, you know, people not necessarily wanting to get an influx of those messages. So how you, how can you actually stand out when you're doing that so the customers are getting something that they care about? So I, I suppose, hands up, I'm no expert in uh, customer experience and uh, um, nurturing customer relationships, but there's a, there's a few thoughts and these are more from my personal perspective of having uh, being uh, a loyal customer to certain organizations. And um, if I think there's one organization in uh, the moment, there's something I would like to purchase right now. And I know that this particular company is not operating. They've had to close down their warehouse and they had to close down their stores. And they have effectively told me on a uh, relatively brief blog on their uh, website. They tell me that they're not open. They apologize for that. And they, they, you know, they wish their customers well. And that's great, fantastic, and I fully appreciate the the difficulties. The one thing that is frustrating me ever so slightly is that I need to keep going back every couple of days and checking, are they open yet? And I keep thinking to myself, wouldn't it be nice if I could just give them my contact details and ask them to let me know when they are open? So instead of um, uh, what, you, what you were referring to, Carla, is a lot of organizations were messaging out to their customers and that was push communications and some some uh, customers will have welcomed that others will have uh, found it just to be spam and annoyance in their uh, inbox whereas what I'm thinking about is actually pull communications there are certain organizations that I want to maintain my relationship with but they're not making it easy for me to do so um, so I think there's there's a lot more to be explored on the dynamics of uh, what the customer needs and expects uh, or would like in terms of delighting the customer, let's be aspirational, uh, there's more more needs to be done to explore what that is. So that can be kind of built into the tooling, built into the, uh, the planning um, from the outset, uh, whether it's something as simple as I can put my email into the website and you'll email me when you're open again. But scale that up. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of other use cases of how it can be improved. And that also sounds like a missed opportunity for the future. That could be a great time for them to build their their email database and then sell to you, you know, a year from now. Absolutely. As long as they tell me that they're uh, taking my information for that and I agree to that reason. But yeah. <laughs> so how do you think things um, might change over the next couple of years? It feels like companies will probably rush to put in continuity plans for the next pandemic, but do you think we'll we'll see them do anything else? Yeah, I think we're at risk of people getting captured by the by the current event. So um, uh, when when nine eleven occurred, we saw um, organisations around the world and especially uh, US governmental organisations focus all of their attention on uh, security type measures. And then Hurricane Katrina happened, um, and that diversion of attention I think is a very natural um, human 
psychological approach to something bad happening. Let's let's never let this happen again. But actually, we need to not forget that there are other risks that we are exposed to in society and multitude. So uh, it's really important to have a this all hazards, as they refer to it in North America, all hazards approach and make sure that we continue to do that. And uh, or this 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 concept of impact based planning that I've talked about. Um, and I, th I think that whilst we have the raised awareness of uh, leaders within organizations, we need to talk to them and have open conversations about all the risks in society. Um, and the, the, the two types of uh, events that can happen, both the um, uh, shocks and stresses. Now, I've heard the Rockefeller Foundation refer to shocks and stresses. I don't know whether they were the first to coin that term, but typically uh, in uh, business continuity crisis management, we're dealing with shock events, things that happen with little notice, big bang type events. But increasingly, we're going to see the, uh, the social pressures of uh, societal pressures of uh, things like climate change, which is going to create more shocks and put more stress on all of our societal systems. So um, I think we need to continue horizon scanning and use this time very carefully to raise awareness of the necessity to do horizon scanning, both on the short, medium and long term uh, for our organisations. And um, I suppose the the only other point I would add to, to that is horizon scanning is uh, only part of the the challenge. So it's all well and good identifying what risks might be uh, down the line for you. But now with that armed with that new information or that new insight, what are you going to do to um, challenge and enhance your business model? to be able to weather those storms on the horizon. So, and I'm very particular about saying business model. I don't mean about creating just more plans for bad things happening. I'm, uh, I think we need to ask ourselves as, as uh, business leaders, what can we do to change our business model so it becomes uh, more resilient to any shock or stress? Um, both building in agility, looking at the product market fit, what's our workforce strategy? Uh, what's our estate strategy look like? Where do we fit into um, uh, the use of emerging technology? What risks does that expose us to? So we, again, we're going beyond the normal or beyond the conventional limitations of business continuity, starting to open it up into a broader set of uh, resilience considerations where you're going to need to collaborate with your risk colleagues, where you're going to need to collaborate with your strategy teams and other teams across the organization. And how much of that responsibility do you think sits with a, a resilience team versus the leadership of an organisation? It feels like if your leadership come in and tell you this was awful and we didn't have a good enough plan, you need to make sure we don't ever have that again, you're going to feel under real pressure to come up with something that relates to current situations rather than being able to do all the great things that you've just described. Yeah, yeah. Um Firstly, building relationships across the organization is always one of the most important parts of business continuity. And I always look at the the training and the uh, qualifications out there uh, for professionals uh, in this field. And they they all seem very technical. And I'm almost wondering, always wondering, where is the training um, 
and uh, kind of coaching opportunities to get better at um, building relationships with an organization, the core uh, persuasion skills uh, and influencing skills. I think so professionals I would ask them to look inwards and I've had to do that myself and by no means am I an expert on it but uh, I think we need to get better as a profession and this goes across all aspects of uh, risk type professions whether it be cyber or business continuity or operational risk we need to get better at uh, influencing and persuading and communicating our understanding of the risks so others uh, come on the journey of awareness with us um, and I suppose um, we need to arm ourselves with the right um, uh, information and data. So uh, uh, that is about going out there both on a qualitative level and having conversations across the organization, um, not just head office, but at a local level as well. Um, and also looking at what the what history tells us. I mean, we knew a pand pandemic was coming. Pandemics occur. Uh, we've had uh, at least at least three of them in the last century, and then a four or five if you include uh, SARS and MERS on top of on top of those. Uh, these are cyclical events. Um, so we need to get much better at. Um, looking out to that horizon that I was speaking about and seeing what's coming that could derail our business model. Um, there's one uh, one book that I would uh, possibly recommend uh, listeners of this podcast. Um, so many of you will have probably heard um, in some of the media commentary and speculation that uh, pandemic was a black swan event. And I wholeheartedly uh, say that's not the case. So black swan event uh, a uh, term coined by uh, Nassim Taleb about uh, these events of such significant magnitude, they they derail uh, all of our preconceived notions of what could be possible. Uh, but they also, a black swan event, come with no notice. So how could we ever have planned for it? In hindsight, we can possibly see the uh, the triggers for it and the warning signs, but uh, uh, but we couldn't possibly have planned for it. Uh, that, that's the premise of a black swan. And I absolutely wholeheartedly say that the, the COVID pandemic is not a black swan because we knew it was coming. It's uh, in the UK specifically. It's been at the top upper right of the National Risk Register for many years. Um, so what I would say that the uh, COVID pandemic is, is um, a case study of the uh, grey rhino. So uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, but the author, Michelle Wooker, who's a, a US-based uh, economist, if I understand correctly, she wrote a book called The Grey Rhino. And I think the book was initially based on the uh, Greek debt crisis uh, in, that was affecting the Eurozone. And uh, in her book, she um, explains that the difference between the black swan and the grey rhino is the grey rhino are these events that you almost know are coming or you uh, you, you con everybody consciously knows, but nobody's quite owning up to it. And uh, the analogy she uses there is that uh, this grey rhino uh, is charging towards you and you're almost so stunned by it. It seems so unsurmountable as a uh, uh, as something coming towards you that you almost kind of panic freeze and you don't know what to do. So you almost pretend it's not charging you down and you just stand there until you get hit. But actually, um, 
to get out of the way of a grey rhino, all you need to do is uh, have a bit of forethought, bring it to the conscious, your conscious mind and jump to the side at the right time. So what's the next grey rhino? <sighs> if only I knew. Um, I've already stated climate change. We all know it's coming. We all know it's going to uh, impact uh, society. Um, we know that uh, it's going to put stresses on how society operates, but it's also causing more and more of these shock events, these natural disaster type events. And we've seen specifically with COVID how uh, it was a health crisis that's become a financial crisis. And I would ask us all to then think if we get more natural disasters um, and changing climatic uh, conditions in certain parts of the world, then that's going to then translate into uh, uh, operational issues and financial issues beyond just the weather event itself. Well, I think that's a, a good one to, to end on. So we wrap up each podcast with 10 quick fire questions. So I need the first answer that comes into your head. Okay. Are you oh, ready? Well, give it a go. <laughs> I can't promise answers. What turns you on professionally? Talking with people. What turns you off professionally? Uh, too many spreadsheets and um, red, amber, green coding that I don't think is actually going to go anywhere or make any difference. How do you unwind? Uh, when I really need to unwind, when I'm really stressed, I go for a walk. Um, but... Uh, I love interacting uh, with friends, especially in the outdoors. What profession other than your own would you like to try? Oh, great question. Uh, linked to that uh, point about the outdoors, I've uh, always wondered whether I'd uh, enjoy getting out there and being some sort of uh, mountain or wilderness guide. What activity gives you the most energy? Talking with my friends and getting into uh, good healthy debate on something uh, that's a little contentious who is your biggest inspiration good question good question we talked carl at the start of this call about uh, podcasts i listen to a lot of them and i learn a lot of from them but they just give me ideas and the inspiration I get and let me change the word inspiration to energy the word energy I get is from those friends uh, and colleagues that can I, I can have those good healthy challenging debates with if you had to present a speech right now what one word would be its subject one word <laughs> <laughs> you got me slightly I'll stumped. give you two if it makes a difference <laughs> <laughs> okay um, as I'm going to stick on topic uh, uh, why resilience you are at your best when you're doing what engaging and facilitating the thinking of uh, others and myself. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Oh, big questions, eh, Carla? <laughs> I told you they got tougher. 
um, the lesson that I still need to better learn for myself is to um, give everything a go, relax more about the consequences. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? You were honest and you tried. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.